All right. Well, again, thanks for being here tonight. I appreciate that. You can sit there and see on the screen is tonight we're going to be talking about Is God Real? Part 1. And because I know that you guys are a bright group, you figured out that because if there's a part one, there's going to be a part two. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Um, so we're going to get through it a little bit tonight. Like I said, I'm just going to, it's a shorter thing. I, I got accused of being a slacker because there's only three pages there. And, uh, and, and I was a slacker, so that's true. And, but what we're going to do tonight is I'm going to cover this part one, uh, which will be the shorter piece as we go through this. And then um, probably... After about 30, 40 minutes of me, uh, Kevin Dormer, a friend of mine, is going to come up, and he's going to bring the piece of uh, using apologetics to get to the gospel. Because, And I just wanted to cover this because next week, right, Brother Steve's going to be in the sanctuary. He's going to be doing gospel evangelism training using the three circles. I used to use the Roman road. Uh, and loved it and used it for many, many years to share the gospel. But this three circles came out, and it just fits so well with apologetics and design and purpose and brokenness that I, I just transitioned to that to use the three circles because it's easy it's easy for me to get into apologetic conversations you know sometimes the gospel I struggle in in that area but if I can get an apologetics conversation going I'm going to get to the gospel and to me, they just go hand in hand. And so Kevin's going to talk about that for about 20, 25 minutes tonight, and then he'll close us out. So the important thing that you need to remember is don't come here next Wednesday, right? Don't be in here. You'll be alone. It'll look really creepy and strange, and security will probably come and take you out. Uh, not take you out. Uh, never mind. Never mind. Don't worry about that. I'm just going to stop because I'm just digging a hole, and it's not getting good right now. Um, so anyway, so that's the way tonight's going to look. I do, again, because I was a slacker, the homework piece didn't get into that package. So when Kevin and I are swapping out on, the, uh, on our laptops, I've got our, the homework piece for this week. And I'll hand this out, as again, as we're swapping out laptops uh, to move into the evangelism apologetic piece, then we'll start handing that out. Bless you. And um, so that'll take care of that. And again, so tonight we're talking about, is God real? Uh, and before we even get into that, you know, there's always, you know, when I, when I leave a class, it's like, oh man, you know, I forgot to say that. And, and I forgot, and, and I really should have said that a lot better. Well, there's something that I think I forgot to say, and you can tell me this, but you know, as we're talking about absolute truth, I mean, most people recognize that two plus three equals five. I mean, most people get that, right? And that's an absolute truth. Um, and most people recognize that the earth is round and revolves around the sun and all that. We, most people get that. I mean, there's a few out there, but... And so they don't struggle with that part of objective or absolute truth. Usually where you're going to get into this idea of absolute and objective truth where people struggle is in the, is with the, in the area of morality and religion. Right? We can be all about objective truth all day long until we hit that issue of morality. And then it's like, oh, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Don't be pushing your, your truth on me. And so just know that that's generally where we, we get into that idea. Uh, you're going to find, yeah, there's no absolute truth in morality and religion. Then there's a few other places, but those seem to be the common ones. And so, again, I just wanted to kind of bring that back into that because I don't think I talked about it last week. Um, again, tonight, is God real? I think we're good. We're ready to move on. And so this, again, is just part one. And again, as we work through this, it's a two-topic thing. And what we're looking at this week 
And then the week after next, when we do part two, is we're looking at arguments or lines, I call them lines of evidence that gives evidence for God's existence. Right? We're not going to walk away from here thinking, man, it's 100% drop dead, we can prove God. That, that's not what's taking place here, right? Because when we talk about evidence, we are just providing evidence that makes it reasonable and plausible and even probable that there is a God that exists, okay? And so you're never going to get 100% on much of anything other than death and taxes. Uh, you can't get that. So just know that we're just providing lines of evidence. And as you continue to build Evidence upon evidence, it makes this case that there is an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God that exists. And it's not only plausible and probable, it, it makes sense that we would have this kind of being. The other thing is, is once we get done with the lines of evidence, it gives existence, it gives evidence for a God that exists, that is all-powerful, that it is all-knowing, right? And is even omnipresent, but it doesn't necessarily prove the God of the Bible, right? There's other steps that we work through to get to that point. But once we move somebody, okay, I got there's something out there. I don't know who he is or what he is. Then we can begin moving towards proving it's the God of the Bible is the God of all creation, okay? And again, what we're just talking about, we're just skipping stones. Man, I mean, we are just going along the surface Probably just about any one of these topics we could teach on for 10 weeks on one topic, on one idea. I mean, it's just, we're just skimming the surface on anything that we're talking about. So if there's something that you like and you're like, man, I just really love that piece, trust me, come and see me. There's some other people. You can get much deeper into this stuff and you can get into all kinds of weeds. It's fun. It's, it's, it's good. It's just find out what your passion is and move in that direction. Uh, are we good? Questions? All right, let's go. Is God real? Part one. So the beginning of the universe. There's three possibilities. When we talk about creation, when we talk about the beginning of the universe, there's three possibilities, and there's only three possibilities about how the universe came into existence. Okay, the first one, it's self-caused. It's self-caused. And what that is saying is, is that at one time, there was nothing. And then the universe created itself out of nothing. Okay? That's self-caused. It's like a baby creating itself with no mom or dad and nothing else. I mean, it's, it's that kind of idea that what we're working with here. And so the universe is either self-caused or it's uncaused, right? Uncaused means that it's eternal. It's always existed from eternity past to eternity future, it's always going to exist. That's uncaused. So we have self-caused, we have uncaused, and then we have caused by another. And we have caused by another. If the universe is uncaused, the other two are not necessary. Self-caused and caused by another, it's not even necessary for those that's, I mean, you're, you're just talking useless stuff, okay? Or if it's self-caused, then it becomes the same thing. If it's caused by another, then it's not the other two. This is not one of these things, right, where we get into our postmodernism and say, well, you know, they're all true. No, that violates the law of non-contradiction. They can't all be true. Only one of these can be true. 
Only one of these can be true. It's either self-caused, uncaused, or caused by another. Okay? So, one, we start with the Bible. I think it's a good place to start. The Bible presupposes God's existence. So when we get into Genesis 1-1, it says, In the beginning, God created. It doesn't introduce God. It doesn't talk to you about God's characteristics, about His plans, about anything else It says God created. So it doesn't introduce God, and it doesn't explain God. It presupposes God's existence. Okay? The Bible doesn't offer anything else outside of that. That's what it offers us. That's what God gives us. That's what we run with. Okay? So we have general revelation. We talked about this uh, two weeks ago a little bit. Uh, general revelation is we can know some things about God by looking at creation. We can look at the created order, and we can learn some things about God. Okay? So God has great power. This is one thing that we learn about God when we look at creation. Right? When we think about the vast expanse of the universe, all of the power that resides within the sun, all of the energy that's out there, and we, right, we believe, right, God created. That's power. That's power that God created that. Romans 1, 19 and 20. It says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God, that other way, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. You only have to look to creation to know there is a greater being out there. God's a designer. We look at creation and we see that. God's powerful. God's a designer. Psalms 19.1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. God's a designer. God's creative. God has written His law on our hearts. God is a personal God. He's a God that communicates. He can communicate. He does communicate with His people. He desires that. He desires that for us. And so he's written his law on our hearts, Romans 2, 14 to 15. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. General revelation. God built that into us. It's part of our DNA as image bearers that he communicates to us. We understand this. And for the most part, well, I was getting ready to jump ahead. But anyway, so there's things that our conscience tells us about us that we know. And everybody knows these things, unless you're a psychopath, right? Or just a full-fledged narcissist, which that may be one and the same, I don't know. Uh, you know these things. You know these things to be true in your heart. So... For those who have never read the Bible, general revelation is enough to introduce people to the idea of God. It's enough to introduce people to the idea of God. General revelation is enough to convict us of sin. General revelation is enough to convict us of sin. But it's not enough to save us. And I think that's where you know we get ourselves in trouble when we think, well, what about the people in the Amazon that have never heard the gospel? 
What about people over in Iran where you can't even get in to get the gospel? What about them? Right? And I've heard people teach this and that of saying, you know what? As long as you respond to the truth that's made available to you, that's enough to save you. And I've heard people teach that before. And, and again, it's one of the, it's like that idea of hell. I kind of like that idea because then it just makes more people are going to get into heaven. There's only one problem with that. That's just not what the Bible teaches. Right? It's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that people are saved. Just responding to some truth does not save you. Right? If you respond to the truth that's put before you, I think God will keep revealing truth to you. Keep revealing truth to you. You know, and the thing is, is, you know, I've read stories, and this has probably really been in the last five years, maybe 10 years, you know, what we're hearing over in Muslim countries where they're literally disclosed. You know, we don't have any, we don't have any missionaries there. And God is showing up in dreams and visions to Muslims. And, tell, and this, is, this is a legitimate story. He tells a guy, he says, go to this town, go to this street, knock on this door. They'll tell you about me. This guy shows up. He knocks on the guy's door, and he says, I understand you're a Christian. He's saying this in Iran. And the guy's like, um, yeah, I am. I was told to come here and you tell me about Jesus. He invites the guy in. He shares the gospel and he gets saved. See, because in the Middle East, they're open to dreams and visions. They're open to dreams and visions. And look, if God can lead you to a gospel situation through dreams and visions, what barrier is there to keep you from hearing the gospel? There is none. There is no barrier to keep you from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to know it, God will get you to the gospel or he'll get the gospel to you. But general revelation is not enough to save anybody. Responding to some truth doesn't save you. It's responding to the truth of Jesus Christ through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We good? Questions? All right, we're going to move on. All right, so arguments for God's existence. Tonight, we're only going to get through this first one, the cosmological argument. And there's more arguments than this. These are just kind of the top three that I work with. Um, and then the next one this is the teleological argument. And again, we'll pick that one up in two weeks. And then the last one's the moral argument. And again, we'll, we'll do that on that two weeks from now. So these are three lines of evidence that I use for God's existence, the cosmological argument, uh, the teleological argument, and then the moral argument. So the cosmological argument, right? Cosmology is the study of order, structure, and design of the universe. The design of the universe. An argument, the cosmological argument, it's an argument from causality and necessity. It's an argument from causality and necessity. So, what is the law of causality? This is the scientific law that exists, and it says that the, it's a law of identity is applied to action. In other words, all actions are caused by entities or something else, 
right? If there's an action, there is something or someone which caused it. If this water bottle was just to fall off of the table, we wouldn't just say it just fell off. Something happened that knocked that water bottle off of the table. There was a cause to create that effect, right? That's the law of causality. For every effect, there's a cause that would bring that about, right? We just don't get, well, never mind. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on on that. That's getting ahead of myself. Because the universe came into ex- came into, it should be existent, the law of causality tells us something or someone had to act to bring about the universe's existence. So again, remember the three possibilities are it's self-caused, it brought itself into existence, it's uncaused, it's always existed. So when we deal with the law of causality, it takes out the self-caused opportunity. Because nothing never brings something into existence. Scientifically, it's impossible. Realistically, philosophically, it's impossible for something to come into existence out of nothing. Okay? The law of causality tells us that. So on that first one, it's self-cause, mark that off your list. So the only thing we're working with now is it's either uncaused, in other words, it's eternal, the universe has always existed and always will exist, or it was created by another. Are we good? Questions? We're good. So the cosmological argument says that God is the best explanation for the existence of the universe. That's what the cosmological argument says. God's the best explanation. Of those three, it's caused by another. That's what this argument says. Now, we can say it, right? But we need to give evidence for it. We don't want to get into circular reasoning and say, well, because the Bible says so, and, and, and then we, just, we don't get anywhere with that. So we need to give evidence for that claim. The first evidence we've given is the law of causality. That's the first line that works against that idea or supports the idea that God is the best explanation for the existence of the universe, right? Nothing cannot bring something into existence. And what I'm getting ready to say, I can say the words. I'm just not sure that I can really comprehend all that this means. Right? So before the universe existed, there was nothing. Right? I think it's Thomas Aquinas said, nothing is what rocks think about. There's nothing. There's nothing. And so when, when we talk to people and they're like, no, 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 it brought itself into existence or, or whatever it is, they're like, they don't go back, well, what was before that moment? They don't go back that way. Because ultimately, that creates roadblocks to their belief. To say, well, what was before that moment? Because before creation, there was no time, there was no space, and there was no matter. No time, no space, no matter. Now, again, I can say those words, but to try to wrap my mind around what does that actually mean, I don't know. It's just too great of an idea for me to necessarily wrestle with. I can teach it. I can talk about it. I just can't really imagine what that's really like, that there's nothing. Right? And so they'll talk about, and we think, 
right? When we, and we'll get into this as Big Bang cosmology, right? People talk about, well, there was just a super condensed mass of something. But that's exactly what that is. That's something, okay? But there was nothing. And that's what we have to wrestle with. There was nothing before God created time, space, and matter. We had none of that. So nothing cannot bring something into existence. Again, we're dealing with the law of causality. We're still dealing with that uh, self-caused idea here. So we learn about God. God is a necessary being, right? A necessary being is one who exists by the necessity of his own nature. He exists, but God is necessary. Here's what we have. And this may offend some people. Probably not, probably not. But there's, there's definitely people in the world that be offended by this. Is that you're not necessary. You could cease to exist, and the world's going to go on. I know that's, you're like, hang on a second. I need some time to wrap my mind around that, right? You can cease to exist, and the world's still going to go on. We could all cease to exist, and the world's going to go on. The world can cease to exist. God's still going on. God is a necessary being. Colossians 1.16, right? It talks, it's talking about Jesus. It says, all things were made by him, for him, and through him. And apart from him, nothing comes into being. If God was to cease to exist, everything would cease to exist. It would, it would just fall, obliteration. God is a necessary being. It means he's infinite. We are contingent beings, which means we're finite. We don't have to exist. And we only exist by the grace and mercy of God. Okay? God is necessary. A necessary being cannot not exist. It took me a while to kind of get used to saying that. He cannot not exist. A necessary being has to exist. God is that necessary being. Necessary being is infinite. In other words, when we say it's infinite, it always existed, always will exist. From eternity past to eternity future, these things, he's always existed. There's never a time when God has not existed or never a moment when God has not existed. So, again, we talked about this. The universe has a contingent existence. In other words, the universe is finite. We are finite beings. Right? The universe did not have to be created, nor does it need to continue to exist. Anything that has a beginning is contingent. If we can point to some point in the past, sometime in the past, and say, I began then, then you're finite. If we can point to the earth, a time when it began, it's finite. It doesn't have to exist. If it had a beginning, then it doesn't need, or it's, it's going to be contingent. And contingency depends on an external cause for its existence. So again, now we're still dealing with that law of causality idea here is a finite being a finite idea, a finite thing depends on the infinite for its existence. Again, Colossians 1.16. So the Kalam cosmological argument. It's kind of a neat argument. 
It's been around since the 1100s. It was actually developed by Islamic philosophers. Okay? The argument says, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause. And that's the argument. I mean, it's not terribly complicated. The ideas can, kind of, can get pretty complicated as you dig into the Kalam, but this is the basic of what the Kalam cosmological argument says. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Right? And so now we're, again, we're, we're still dealing with this idea of self-caused and uncaused, and that's the idea that we're walking through. So science supports the Kalam. And again, you've got people, why is Christianity so anti-science? It's not. It's really not. It's a straw man that people set up not understanding either science or Christianity. It's not anti-science. Right? The Kalam, right? Albert Einstein's theory of relativity led him to believe in an expanding universe, which is really kind of interesting because he did not, before he developed this theory of relativity, Einstein believed in this, what this, it's called the steady state. It's called the steady state theory. And it wasn't, and really what he was leaning towards is that the universe always existed. It was eternal. But once he hit on this theory of relativity, it's like, hmm, that can't be so. And there's more to the story there. I'm going to leave that hanging, but there's more to that uh, he realized from the theory of relativity the universe had a beginning, okay, in this theory of relativity. And then we had the invention of the Hubble telescope. It gave evidence of the theory of the expanding universe. I mean, this was the first time we had this powerful telescope back in the, I think it was the 50s is when it was invented and they came up with this. You could see that the universe is expanding. It's just going further and further out. Okay, it's an expanding universe. From this idea, they developed Big Bang Theory. Right? There's this huge bang, and everything came into existence from that over billions and billions of years. 11 billion, I think, is what we're up to now. Um, and, and I'm okay. I'm okay with the Big Bang Theory up to a certain point. Mostly it's up to this point. God said it, and bang, it came into existence. You know, I was talking. I think it was Michael and I were talking today, and this idea. I was watching. Uh, it was a um, a Nova show, and again, these were man, brilliant people, scientists, and they were talking about the Big Bang. And again, not Christians. These these are not Christians. If I had to guess, most of them were atheists or agnostic, and they were sitting there saying it was like a millionth of a second or less from the time the Big Bang happened. Everything had to be in its place. If it expanded too quickly, everything just would have gone off into oblivion. If it expanded too slowly, everything would have collapsed back in upon itself. A millionth of a second. I don't even know what a millionth of a second is, but a bunch of them have gone by since I started this conversation. A bunch of them, right? And when everything had to be in its place, all the planets, in their orbit, but that's an accident, okay, right? 
Richard Dawkins sits there and says, you know, I know if it looks like everything's got design, but you have to tell yourself it doesn't. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so if you've got to keep telling yourself this, this is an accident, this is, I know it looks like it's designed, right? It's, it's not a duck. I know that looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, but it's not a duck. It's like, look, that doesn't make sense to even Richard Dawkins. When you get desperate for an answer, you'll say anything. And trust me, I, I know from experience. Yeah, Amanda. You know, most of the things I've read, it, they go back to, they don't see any need to go back beyond the Big Bang. And, and again, if I was trying to hold my, my philosophy together, and that's really what it is, it's a philosophy, knowing that, you know, if I go beyond this point, it's going to wreck my philosophy. I'm just not going to go beyond that point. The Big Bang is as far as they, they, they don't see a need to go back is what they would say. But that's not science. Science is always discovering. Right? We talked about truth. Truth is discovered. It's in our DNA as image bearers, to make and to find and to discover, they just don't go beyond that point. So the universe is expanding. It must have had a point of beginning. If we know the universe is expanding, and it is, there has to be a beginning point that where it started its expansion from. And the whole thing, I mean, you know, you, the pictures that are coming in from this web telescope, I don't know if you've seen them. They're amazing. They are amazing. And it's just interesting seeing, and again, all the information, the data is, is it's new, it's coming in. But what right now what they're seeing is, is basically it's just confirming what we've already known. There's an expanding universe. They're holding out hopes for new things, and, and they may find new things. I mean, that's, that's just all part of it. Yeah, Warren. Um, I mean, I, th I think they both work, but ultimately it is expanding. I mean, I mean, we, we know that, that it, that it is expanding from a scientific perspective. We know that the universe is, I mean, the evidence is irrefutable. The universe is expanding and it's almost, I mean, if you imagine if I had a balloon here and I was to glue buttons on that balloon and the balloon would, would represent space because space is something, right? We look out and we see darkness, but space is something that actually exists. And I blow the balloon up, right? Space expands, but the buttons still stay the same distance from each other. It's all an equal ratio that works with that expanding because you would think, well, how come the planets just don't get out of their orbit? Everything expands. Space is expanding, but all of the planets and everything, they stay in proportion to where they're at. And so can we discover new things? Absolutely. And I think, that, you know, with the Webb telescope, they're, they're going to discover new things. But it's something that's always existed as far as from creation. So we are, Ron? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. And again, 
most definitely. So it's it's expanding. So we we can't get away from that truth. But again, I mean, I, there's a psalm. I can't remember. I wish I had looked it up. And it says, "Man, God stretches out the heavens." Now I'm not saying that that's the expansion that we're talking about. It just I can't read that without thinking about it, though. God stretches out the heavens. It's nothing for Him. Okay. Uh, good question, though, Warren. Uh, second law of thermodynamics supports the idea that the universe is also expanding. There's, there's like six different lines. We're only going to look at a couple of them uh, here tonight. But you have the second law of thermodynamics. <coughs> Excuse me. Second law of thermodynamics says it's not here, but energy is neither created nor destroyed. It exists within a closed system, and the amount of usable energy in a closed system decreases over time. Now, as an atheist or an agnostic or a scientist, they would sit there and say, the universe that we are in, it's a closed system. And what they mean by that is there's nothing outside of that system. And if there is, it's not impacting anything inside the system. Okay? By defining it that way, you're eliminating the need for a supernatural being, for God. <coughs> Excuse me. But that's what they'll say. But, every, but everything within the system, it's a closed system, and energy decreases over time. In other words, we're running out of usable energy in the universe. We're running out of usable energy. How long will the energy last? I got no idea. But if there is no God, eventually it's just a cold death that happens. And the energy just as a clock that winds down or the battery runs out, it just ceases to function. Um, so we're running out of usable energy. If something's running out of energy, it's finite, which means it had a beginning. This answers the uncaused section. In other words, that the universe has always existed. The expansion says it hasn't always existed. Second law of thermodynamics says the universe has not always existed, so it's not eternal. There was a point in time when it had a beginning, we're going to say Big Bang, okay? Or God spoke, and it came into existence back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. So, only that which is eternal is infinite. Only that which is eternal is infinite. So, objections to the cosmological argument. This is the main objection. If God made the universe, who made God? If God made the universe, who made him? Or her, or it, or, or whatever gender pronoun we're using today. And so I've, I've had atheists ask me this question. And so before I answer, it's like, can I ask you a question? And they're like, yeah. And I said, if the evidence showed that the universe was eternal, would you be okay with that? What do you think they said? Yeah, they're, they're okay with the universe being eternal. I can accept that the universe has always existed. Then why can you not accept that there's a God who's always existed? So it's, eternality is not the issue. From eternity past to eternity future, that's not the issue. God's the issue. God is the issue. And you bring up any argument, I don't care whether it's gender, marriage, government, 
anything else, God's always going to be the issue. If you're rejecting those things, God's always the issue. Now, a lot of people don't think about it like that, but ultimately that's what's taking place. I don't want there to be an all-knowing, all-powerful, supernatural being who created us because I'm answerable to that being. People will hide behind intellectual arguments, but it's never an intellectual argument. It's always a heart issue. It's always a heart issue. Right? Only those things that have a beginning need a cause. God's eternal from eternity past to eternity future. He's always existed. There, there was no one to make God because if there was, then that would be God. And then you would go back to, well, after that, and you end up with what's called an infinite regress. Is the, uh, the cosmological argument deals with that. And again, it's another complicated thing that says, if you have to keep going back into eternity past, you'll never get to today. So there cannot be an infinite regress. There's God. He created. He's always existed. He's necessary. We are not. We are not. So that's what has no beginning, needs no cause. God is infinite and eternal. Therefore, he needs no cause. He needs no cause. God is the uncaused first cause of all that has been created. He is the uncaused first cause of all other things. Questions? Okay. Well, this is going to be the end of this. This is kind of your homework. I'm going to hand out a sheet on this. Again, it's a couple of those videos that kind of deal with what we've been talking about here tonight. And if you have no questions, we're going to swap out, and I'll get this other stuff handed out to you. All right. Thanks. All right. Well, I'm honored to get to speak to you all tonight. I'll warn you up front. I'm not a level nine black belt in apologetics like Mr. Rick Jones is, uh, but I'm going to do my best. Uh, I'm Kevin Dormer. And what Rick asked me to talk about tonight, he kind of mentioned talking about what is the connection between apologetics and evangelism. And it's pretty easy to see, and you might be thinking, why, why do we need to highlight more of this? Because you're, you're obviously here. You came to an apologetics class. I think that the more convinced you are of the effectiveness of apologetics in sharing the Christian worldview with other people and the impact that it has on your own life, my hope is that you will continue to pursue it more outside of Wednesday nights to figure out how do I learn more of this so that I can become a more effective ambassador for Christ using this material. Because I admit, I mean, some of those things that we talked about tonight might feel like a pretty, might, might feel like your brain is full a little bit trying to process that and think, how would I share that with somebody else? But the more practice you have and the more exposure you have to it, not only will you become more excited about it, but you'll feel like, I can, I can do this. This isn't that hard. And because of the way God has created us to understand Him, understand His nature, uh, to understand the, the things that we talked about, the cosmological argument, that should make us excited to feel like, man, I can share that with other people and they can understand it too. And God created us that way. And so that's, that's why we're going to go through a few of these things. That was too long of an intro, but uh, I'll give you a little bit more, more background here in just a little bit. So chances are you probably heard from somebody, you can't win somebody into the kingdom through apologetics. 
something to that effect, maybe not those exact words. And if by that we mean God has to do the ultimate work of changing somebody's heart because we're sinful, we, we're not going to desire him in the first place until he basically gives us the desire for him because our, our nature is, is bad right from the get-go. So we agree with that. However, that's been taken to a level where apologetics is almost kind of like a, a condiment on the buffet of these are things that we're supposed to do at church. It's kind of an extra. And some churches or individuals even think it's more of an error. We shouldn't be, shouldn't be doing that. It's more of a distraction. Uh, you could group that into an idea called anti-intellectualism. Here's what a guy named uh, Charles Malick said about that. Um, this was back in 1980. Uh, he wrote this. I must be frank with you. The greatest danger confronting American evangelical Christianity is the danger of anti-intellectualism. The mind in its greatest and deepest reaches is not cared for enough. So what's a, another way to state that? You know, God tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Because the connection between the mind and the heart or the, and the soul is a very real thing. If I were to try to convince you that this podium is not on the stage... I made a really powerful argument. Maybe it was really appealed to your emotional. Maybe I even offered you a million dollars, which wouldn't go as far today. But if I gave you a million dollars to believe that this podium is not on the table or on, on the, the platform here, could you ever get there? You couldn't, right? No matter what you want to believe, your intellect, your senses, the other things that God has given you is telling you, man, I would love to get that a million dollars, but I can't get there because... I'm seeing the evidence that this thing is actually here. So that connection between the mind and the heart is so important. And like Rick said, ultimately, it does come down to a heart issue. Uh, a guy that I love to listen to named Frank Turek goes to college campuses and gives a presentation called, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And he usually packs out the place because that brings lots of people that are interested to hear what he's going to say. And one of the questions he'll ask somebody if they're a really uh, outspoken atheist is, hey, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And often the answer he'll get is no. No, I wouldn't. Now, what is that had just exposed? That's, that's not a mind issue. That is not someone who is there to say, if you give me enough reasoned arguments, I'm going to become a Christian. They basically just said, I don't want it. Like, I don't care what you're going to say to me. That, that's important for that person to admit that. It's a very insightful question, I think, for him to ask that. But think about all the other people in the room, too, that see that happening. They're thinking, man, this isn't really a intellectual back and forth anymore. That person just doesn't want it. And so we know that the heart obviously is at play, but I think of the intellectual side almost like a brick wall. People set up this this wall so they don't have to face God's his judgment, his say in their life, um, his call and what they're supposed to do, what their purpose is. They, they want to do their own thing, and they ultimately miss out on his grace, his kindness, all the other things too, but they've built up these bricks into a wall. Some of them are postmodern things like uh, pluralism, relativism, uh, ideas of uh, uh, evolution from a macroevolution standpoint. So now they don't have to face what God says about their lives because, well, hey, I don't, I don't need that. Or an even more slippery one is, well, hey, you have your truth and that's fine. I have my truth. So you can see how those bricks in the wall prevent somebody from really having to face the hard issue because it's kind of an excuse to not not have to. So hopefully. I know you guys probably realize that, but the intellectual side is something that we can neglect really to our peril from the standpoint of trying to reach people. Um, if we look at Scripture, it's, it's commanded. And I know that Rick has probably gone through some of these, but just as a reminder, 1 Peter 3.15 is probably one of the most powerful and, and commonly used arguments for apologetics. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
Sometimes we don't do that last part so well. We skip the gentleness and respect piece. But that word make a defense, apologia, means a reasoned argument, a thoughtful defense, like a lawyer in a courtroom saying, this is why the Christian worldview makes the most sense, why it explains the things that we see around us, the things that are wrong in our own hearts, the things that we recognize as being, uh, you know, but we don't use the word sin if you're not a Christian, but you know something's wrong and you can't explain why. That's what we're trying to do with apologetics. In Jude, it says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Saints, That same idea of contending for the faith and using reason. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So destroying arguments, that's pretty strong words. We're not destroying the people. We're destroying the, the poor arguments with reason removing those bricks out of the wall so that then they can face the truth of who God is and the good news of that, too, after they understand the bad, the bad news first. Lastly, uh, in Colossians, Paul says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Your speech must always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how, how you should respond to each person. So bringing that down, conducting with wisdom, so being smart, being wise in your interaction with people, being kind, that's that you know, gentleness and respect piece. And then lastly, how to respond to each person. The best term for this that Greg Coco uses is being, being tactical. What does that mean? Each individual engagement with someone should depend on the condition of that person's heart, the circumstances, taking it on an individual basis rather than a cookie-cutter cookie approach to deal with people. And this is not a, uh, a push for sp specific books. Let me first read this quote by Francis Schaeffer. He says, if I have only an hour with someone, I will spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And then in the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. We don't always have an hour with people, right? But it's very important that we start to understand the circumstances of the person that we're talking to. And one of the best books I've ever read of how to do this is this book, Tactics. Um, it is excellent if you will. Yes. And. No royalties are given to either one of us if you buy it, but I'm telling you, if you will read and apply that book, it's very easy to use. It will change the way that you interact with other people in lots of different conversations, not just spiritual ones. And it is a, a great way to learn, how do I do what Jesus did in asking questions, being a good listener, and then, like Francis Schaeffer talks about, using what you just learned to guide that conversation towards sharing your faith with them. The second one ties into kind of our next topic, but... So The Next Generation Will Know is written by Sean McDowell, he's Josh McDowell's son, and a guy named Jay Warner Wallace, who was a cold case homicide detective, uh, became a Christian basically through researching the New Testament authors as a homicide detective and coming to the conclusion, man, this has got to be true. And he basically, through his own apologetics, became a Christian and got working on his heart there. This book is uh, it's kind of hard to read at first because it's a fire alarm with what's happening with The Next Generation but it is an excellent book with seeing what do we do? How do we equip the generation that we're currently losing? Uh, so I really encourage you to read that if you have kids at home or just kids that you care about um, in the church. So scripture commands it, culture demands it. So that's kind of where that next uh, book talks about that. The culture that young people are facing is very different. I know you guys don't need any convincing in that. Here's some statistics. I know you heard some rough ones last week. About 50 to 70% of young people that grow up in the church after high school, they don't come back. They're done with Christianity. This is kids that grow up in the church. And I know if you're like me, the initial tendency is to think, man, those other churches, they got to get it together, right? 
man, it's easy to think, well, surely that wouldn't happen here. Until we have evidence that that is not happening under our own roof with our Bellevue young people and the people in our own homes, we have to assume that the same challenges that are causing those terrible statistics are ones that could be facing our own kids and leading to the same result. We'd be kind of foolish not to do that. The good news is with surveys, they asked them why. Uh, uh, there was probably four or five different surveys that combined to get all the data, and they asked them why did they walk away. And their answer predominantly was an unanswered intellectual skepticism. So unanswered is pretty self-explanatory. They had doubts. They were afraid to share them, or when they provided them, or when they, when they shared those doubts, they were given an answer like Rick mentioned, you just need to have more faith. You just need to trust. And they might not have said anything at the time, but young people will file that away and say, man, that wasn't really an answer, but I'm hearing from this YouTube skeptic or from social media or from my friends or from this professor that Christianity really isn't worth believing in from an intellectual standpoint. They have these questions that don't get answered. And the good news is there is so much available to us if we know either the answers or where to find it and the willingness to be honest with our young people. And I'm, I'm teaching in middle school and, and trying my best to do that there, but we need this as a whole across Bellevue and just within our homes as well. Uh, they also said they began disconnecting from the church at the age of 15. That was when that was starting to happen, so a lot younger than I would have assumed. So tonight's topic was perfect. Obviously, if we're going to convince people about God's Son, what God says in His Word, God's acts and, and His role in salvation in our lives, well, if they've already discounted God completely, then that's a problem. The predominant worldviews that we're facing, this is kind of what everybody's immersed in, is relativism, pluralism, and naturalism. Relativism saying there is no truth. Pluralism means there's no religious truth. This is kind of the Oprah perspective, like everybody's got you know different spokes on the wheel. We all arrive at the same place. But it's a very surreptitious way of dis discounting religious truth completely. And then naturalism says there's no supernatural truth. Obviously, those are contradictory to everything that the Christian worldview believes, uh, but that's kind of what is uh, around everywhere today. Alistair McGrath, um, who's a theologian as well, he said, apologetics lays the ground for this invitation and evangelism extends it. So think about that as well as one more. This is a, a quote from back in 1910, which was pretty uh, insightful, but it kind of matches up with what we talked about destroying arguments. Uh, Jay Gresham Mac Mackin said this at uh, Princeton Theological Cere uh, Seminary, false ideas are the greatest obstacles to the reception of the gospel. Under such circumstances, what God desires us to do is to destroy the obstacle at its root. So again, it's that idea of taking some of those bricks out of the wall that people are using as an obstacle to be presented with the truth of God. We know the culture needs it. We know the church needs it. And that includes um, viewing Bellevue as that evangelical mission field just as much as on the outside. Uh, I didn't grow up in the South, and we lived here. For, we moved here from Las Vegas, where if you were going to church, it was probably because you really wanted to be there. It wasn't because you grew up that way. And it's a different challenge here, right? Because people culturally go to church more. If you ask them, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I've been here for a long time. I'm like, well, that's not really what I was asking. So we need to view that as a way of almost a post-evangelism. Apologetic fit, fits in with that version of evangelism as well in trying to equip people that maybe believe or would say that they're believers, but actually are not. And then for the purpose of post-evangelism, so the believers don't get swept into the cultural lies. There's so many examples of deconversion stories and things where even prominent Christians are saying, hey, I walked away from Christianity. Usually it's because they wanted to be able to do something that Christianity said, hey, God says this is wrong. Um, but there's a lot of that happening. And so apologetics help, helps us be armed against that with, uh, with truth. 
So the other reason why is it works. I mean, we see a lot of examples of that. Here's just a few names. Uh, I talked about J. Warner Wallace, individuals that were convinced of the truth of who God is through what he has shown us through general revelation and through other things like Rick was talking about earlier. And in addition to that, we all know that when we're convinced that something is true, it changes you. So it's one thing to be a Christian and to have grown up that way. But when you get to the point where you think, man, this is actually true. I'm convinced of that. There's strong evidence for it. You can't help it. It changed the way you share that with other people, the passion that you have, because you don't just want to believe it's true. You, you know it's true. And so that is so important, not just for evangelizing new believers, but for equipping those of us that are already Christians in that way that we want to share with other people. Here's a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis. Hopefully this isn't too small to read. He says, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. That's moral relativism, basically. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. He's describing the need for a moral law to exist only because there is a moral law giver. That's a perfect example of apologetics. And we were talking earlier about you know, how Ray Comfort and different people use the Ten Commandments and the law to show, hey, this is already written on our hearts. And so if you can point out to people, when people you know, cry out for some type of justice, where does this idea of justice come from? How can you even desire that unless there is someone who gives us justice and says this is the straight line so that you can recognize the crooked line that C.S. Lewis is talking about. And that, that's why that argument is so powerful and a great uh, evangelism tool as well. This uh, next thing that I want to talk about just for a couple minutes I think is really important. And I didn't really think about it this way until just a few years ago. But uh, Greg Kokel talks about this, kind of making a distinction and understanding that evangelism includes... Well, I'll just read this. So before there can be a harvest... There has to be a season of gardening. So what does that mean? When you're sharing and evangelizing with someone and they, they come to Christ, um, there, there was already a season of that person considering Christ for some amount of time up until that point. And today, that time is growing, the amount of time it takes for someone to consider Christ uh, because of some of the different roadblocks and things that people have used to say, well, I don't need to consider that because I have, you know, fill in the blank that says I don't need to. Um, Francis Schaeffer calls this pre-evangelism, so thinking about the gardening prior to the harvest actually happening. We need to recognize that the fallen state of mankind is constant, but the things that have provided uh, obstacles to intellectual ascent have changed over time, and therefore we have to be able to adjust to those tactically. Just like there were the Gnostics a long time ago, today we have different twists of reality and twists of truth that we have to be able to address as part of that, uh, that gardening so if we don't think about that way, that way, if we try to jump right into the harvesting stage with someone who is not ready, if you want to go to the extreme and say someone who's a you know, pretty staunch atheist, has never even wanted to and will not consider Christ, to jump right into the three circles with them might not be the best tactic when you need to start out with some of the fundamentals. I was trying to explain to the, the middle schoolers, if you're trying to share about the Christian worldview and you're kind of building this house 
uh, and you're putting on the finishing touches and you're explaining all the great reasons why Christianity is the best reason for the way things are and God's role in all of that, and then they come back with, well, that's your truth. Oh, man, you didn't have a foundation to start with, right? There was no foundation to build that house on, and that's true with lots of people that we talk to today, and so we have to make sure that we know, are we even talking about the same terms and the same framework of, as, of truth before we get all the way to necessarily the harvesting stage? Here's an example uh, from John. So Jesus has just talked to the, the Samaritan woman at the well. She gets fired up, goes back to the town, and starts telling everybody, right? Come and see the man. This is what just happened. And Jesus is now back with the disciples, and he says, uh, as those people from Sychar are now coming towards them, he says, do you not say there are four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper can rejoice together. For here the same holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. So somebody else already did the heavy lifting, right? He's telling them what's about to happen. You didn't do that, but you're going to get to see the results. You're going to get to reap that. And so the picture is, as Christians, we should see there's a big field. There's people in different stages of that. There's gardening that has to take place, and it typically takes a long period of time. And there's harvesting that, that takes place, but we can rejoice in doing both jobs together. Often, and maybe this is not a good generalization, but I would say some Christians are hesitant about the harvesting piece. They think, well, if I'm going to start this conversation with somebody, I don't know if I'm going to get, you know, I don't really know them. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get all the way through a gospel presentation in the time that I have. So maybe I'll just not engage. Maybe I'll just stay on the bench. If instead we think, you know, this opportunity that God has given me might just be a chance where we start that conversation, do some gardening, not knowing where that's going to lead, you know, nine conversations down the road with other people that's going to lead to that harvest. And so that gives us the freedom to say, man, I want to I start this conversation and maybe just do something to make them start thinking about the Christian story, even if we can't get all the way to the harvesting stage. Hopefully that makes sense. By no means am I downplaying, we want to share the gospel. That is the ultimate goal. But we also have to realize there's a lot of work that happens uh, up until that point before that person is maybe ready. So in every encounter, if you can think about this, things that we, we can do as Christians, first reflect God's character. So that's a winsome manner, being kind. Um, when you are confident in what you believe, that also changes your demeanor. You're more willing to talk to people with kindness. You're not defensive. And so that helps us in, in that aspect as well. Be a good listener and ask questions. We talked about that. What's the condition of this person's heart and mind? I'll, I'll share an example where uh, Greg Kogel was on an airplane with somebody and he started talking to him, and the guy shared, well, I used to be a Christian. My dad was actually a pastor, but I'm not anymore. Do you think that would frame the discussion from that point on? If he were to go right into the Roman road or the three circles at that point you know, in the conversation, that would be a mistake. That would be a, an error because the condition of his heart and his circumstances is going to hopefully shape the conversation differently. So share God's truth considering what you've learned already. And then put a stone in their shoe. That's kind of Greg Kokel's uh, signature phrase. Get them thinking about something important about Christ or put a doubt in their mind over something in their view. So maybe loosen up one of those bricks in the wall uh, so that in future conversations, maybe you could get a little bit further along. And that's really important. So leave the door open for future conversations. If you have a conversation with somebody and you're kind to them and you get to a point where maybe you don't know how to answer something or you get to a natural end of the conversation, you say, 
man, I would love to pick this up again later. Could, you know, there were a few things that maybe I need to do some homework on and maybe get, see what your thoughts are after you, you consider what we talked about. Can we do that again? You've now left that door open rather than trying to hurry and close the deal uh, with that conversation. And then lastly, this one rings home to me because in the military, the debrief was huge. We would spend hours debriefing a mission because that's where you really learned and figured out what do I not do next time or what do I do again? What worked? And so with other believers, you know, you're not always going to be able to have the same conversations as other people. So when we have a, a, an engagement with someone of sharing the gospel and it went well or it didn't go well, we need to talk about that with other people so that we can learn from it. And, and even if it means, man, I kind of blew it here. I didn't know what to say. I got upset or, you know, whatever. Um, you've got, we have to learn from that and include other Christians. So I'm kind of out of time, uh, but you're going to talk a lot about this, obviously, next week. So think about, in the three circles example, you can see with Rick's examples with uh, the law of cause, uh, causality, it is super easy to include those types of things in the three circles kind of template for sharing the gospel. And even if you don't remember, you know, everything that Rick talked about as you review your notes, just think about, you know, if you start talking about God's design and somebody says, hold on, well, I, don't, I don't believe in God, you know, and rather than saying, well, you need to, and here's why, first you just ask them a question. What, tell me about the God that you don't believe in, just so I understand where you're coming from. Because they may describe a God that you say, I don't believe in that God either. But by asking a question, you can get them to explain well, this is, this is the God I don't believe in, and then you can go from there. And if, if you get the chance, you can say, well, can I give you some reasons why I, I think it makes sense that there is a creator God? Um, and I told the middle schoolers, like, if I came home one day and there was a brand new Z06 Corvette in the garage, and Angela walks in, I'm looking at it, and she's like, where did this come from? I don't know. It just showed up. It's just here. Isn't that great? No, I'm going to be in big trouble. We're going to have a lot of uh, a lot of counseling and talking to do. We we know that we know that things don't pop into existence, and so to me that's an, an analogy for and you, the law of causality. And, and what is that? It basically just says everything that has a beginning has a cause, whether it's Corvettes or flat screens or whatever. The universe had a beginning, therefore the universe has a cause. And then ask them, you know, in that conversation, like, does that make sense to you? Do you you follow that? So you can see there are so many opportunities in here sin, brokenness, like so much that ties into apologetics is hand in hand with sharing the gospel. It's definitely not a, not a separate thing as you deal with the intellect and kind of the gateway that that is to the heart. So I don't want to go uh, over any more than I already have. Do you guys have any questions for me before I close? I don't want to take, keep you too long. I appreciate you letting me talk tonight for sure. All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your kindness towards us and just making us where we can understand um, what you have done for us, the way that you made us to be, to include being able to see the things that are wrong and understand why in our own hearts and in the world around us. Uh, give us the courage to begin conversations and use the things that we've learned. Give us um, the right eyes to see people with compassion around us and so that we have that desire to engage rather than uh, sit on the sidelines. I thank you for all these um, people here tonight and just for their effect on their own families and in the, the groups that they interact with, uh, that we can use more of these things to be better ambassadors for you. Amen.